It is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. I am not my own, but belong body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Remember who you are and whose you are. Baptism washes and cleanses us from our sins and transforms us from being the children of wrath into the children of God. Hello and welcome to episode 4 of Identity, a podcast that explores Christian identity and doctrine with a reformed bent. I'm your host, Nathan Longfield. Today is Friday, September 4th. Today's episode is the second episode of the Brief Doctrinal Examinations, and today we'll look at how to understand and approach scripture. But before we start, a quote I encountered this week in Calvin's Institutes on Identity that I wanted to share. If we, then, are not our own, but the Lord's, it is clear what error we must flee, and whither we must direct all the acts of our life. We are not our own. Let not our reason nor our will therefore sway our plans and deeds. We are not our own. Let us therefore not set it as our goal to seek what is expedient for us according to the flesh. We are not our own. And so far as we can, let us therefore forget ourselves and all that is ours. Conversely, we are gods. Let us therefore live for him and die for him. We are gods. Let his wisdom and will therefore rule all our actions. We are gods. Let all the parts of our life accordingly strive toward him as our only lawful goal. Oh, how much has that man profited who, having been taught that he is not his own, have taken away dominion and rule from his own reason, that he may yield it to God. For as consulting our self-interest is the pestilence that most effectively leads to our destruction, so the sole haven of salvation is to be wise in nothing, and to will nothing through ourselves, but to follow the leading of the Lord alone. Thanks for indulging that. We'll be back after a quick break to explore this piece of Christian doctrine and identity. As I mentioned in the first doctrine episode, scripture is the only fully authoritative source of knowledge. However, there's a lot more to unpack in terms of why we believe scripture is inspired as well as a more nuanced understanding of that which helps us consider what Scripture is. First and foremost, we hold that Scripture is the Word of God in the words of humans who are inspired by the Spirit. As noted last week, we believe this not because the Church says Scripture is authoritative or inspired, but because, as the Belgic Confession notes, the Holy Spirit testifies in our hearts that the books of the Bible are from God, and also because they prove themselves to be from God. Indeed, Scripture also testifies of itself in 2 Timothy 3.16 that all Scripture is God-breathed, or inspired by God, and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And while we certainly hold this as true, this argument can seem a little simplistic or convoluted from an apologetic sense, and that taking the proof of authority of Scripture from Scripture forms a somewhat circular argument. However, 
how God continues to speak in and through scripture testifies to its inspiration. The Belgic Confession notes, citing 2 Peter 1.21, that we confess that this word of God was not sent nor delivered by human will, but that men and women moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God, as Peter says. Now this inspired nature of scripture presents an interesting situation. As unlike the holy texts of some other religions, we do not hold scripture as a text handed down from God pre-written. Rather, we understand that God inspired God's people to write the text. Now within that, there are various ways that can be understood. One approach is that God, in a sense, took over the minds of the humans. Another is that this was a purely human endeavor. However, I think an incarnational model provides a helpful way to approach this. We'll get to Christology in short order, but for now let us suffice it to say that Christ, as fully human and fully God, where the divinity of God did not override the humanity, and where Christ remained fully human apart from sin, yet fully divine, provides a model. That is, Christ, the Word made flesh, provides a way for us to think about the Word, Scripture. That is, Christ, the Word made flesh, provides a way for us to think about the Word, Scripture. So, Scripture can be rightly understood in an incarnational way, where the human authorship should not cause trouble about Scripture's authority, nor should it appear as though the Spirit overrode the human author's understandings or accounts that are recorded. As Ross Kraseski notes, if God truly became man, he must have accepted all the consequences of the historical condition, which includes living in a particular time, place, and culture. It would hardly be consistent for him to do violence to the way in which his own history was told and recorded in that culture by the people of that age. He did not arbitrarily change their way of thinking and writing by giving them a crash course on modern historiography, so that they would write a textbook about him that would satisfy the curiosity of today's historians. So, while the Spirit inspired scripture, God's love for humanity is so great that God would not twist the human author's wills or words, but instead would allow them to write the inspired texts. So while the human authors penned scripture, God, by the Spirit's inspiration, is the primary author of scripture. And so, scripture is the sole authority in life and faith, and is inerrant and infallible in all that it intends to teach. Thus, any perceived quote-unquote historical inaccuracies or self-contradictions in the text should not prove as stumbling blocks. Indeed, the various sorts of what is called biblical criticism, not in that it criticizes scripture but in that it analyzes it, will present different understandings of authorship, such as theories of multiple authors and oral traditions passed down and joined together in narratives in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. One possible explanation for the two accounts of creation in Genesis. They don't exist to counter or conflict, but flesh out and inform each other. These various forms of textual criticism can prove to be very valuable, providing context from where the books were written, examining the sort of literature of the text and the context around it. Moreover, a good understanding of the inspiration of scripture also means we can engage with these various biblical critical forms of analysis with confidence. Because regardless of if you want to hold that Moses wrote all of the first five books of the Bible, 
or if you think it is more likely a collection of four sources were merged together, we can confidently hold that the spirit was present in and through all writing, theoretical compiling, and the like, and continue to trust scripture as inspired and authoritative. And since we can then engage these avenues of looking at scripture healthily, they give us some different ways to consider scripture. This includes understanding the various styles of scripture. When we open a book of poetry, we understand its poetry. When we open an allegorical work, we understand it to be allegory. The same is true of scripture. Sometimes we want to treat every book of the Bible as if it is the same type of literature. However, the Psalms are very clearly poetry, and so certain language should not be taken literally. This is not to say the passages do not teach us something, but that, as we hold scripture as inerrant and infallible in all it intends to teach, we also recognize that God speaks in scripture in a variety of ways. And so, for example, when Psalm 91, a poem and a prayer, speaks of God's feathers and God covering us in his wings, it should not be read to mean that God literally has feathers, but that God protects and saves. Indeed, this also helps us understand that certain accounts of scripture that recount history do indeed give us a historical picture, but they're not written like a modern historical textbook. This is also eminently helpful in reading when scripture leans more on allegory or similar situations. Now, it is important to do this well and faithfully, as throwing this sort of thing around can lead to errors, but it is crucial. It is also important to note that a text without a context is a pretext for a proof text. That is, without understanding the history and context of the book, or if we consider it in a vacuum, we will often fail to understand it rightly, or use it out of context and use it to make an argument that doesn't actually make sense or isn't faithful to scripture. Take a minute. Think about a favorite line of yours from a movie or a book. Now think about if someone were to encounter that line without having seen the rest of the film or having read the book. Inevitably, they would fully or partially misunderstand what it means. And so knowing the context is important and necessary. Now some will, understandably, argue this is a slippery slope because understanding context can be used to just pick and choose passages, ignore or discredit some on the basis of context. However, this is not what it's for. It's used to inform the context and to read within all of scripture and the spirit's work within the body in how we engage scripture. One strand of Christian tradition, the senses of scripture, help us engage with both the historical and literal aspects of a text. While also exploring the more logical, or tropological, which is moral, components. Well, I'll link in the show notes to a paper I wrote on this if you want to explore it more. Here it will suffice to note that recognizing how multiple senses, or only one, are present in passages of scripture helps us engage the various ways that a passage may speak to Israel, as well as pointing to Christ, as well as maybe directing us how to live, or maybe only one or two of those things. This potential tool allows us to lean into various and numerous ways that God's Spirit both inspired and continues to speak through God's Word, so that we, 
in the body of believers can faithfully engage with the text. So, in short, Scripture is the inspired Word of God, written by humans, inspired by the Spirit. And so, trusting in the Spirit's inspiration and the Spirit's continuing activity, we can engage with various aspects of biblical study without fear of it. In most cases, tearing down the work of God. And if we do, in fact, believe that a form of study is not faithful to the text or how the Spirit is working, we can also faithfully engage and show why. At its core, today we see that Scripture is the Word of God, and it is the authoritative source of knowledge of God and our faith. So as we continue exploring who God is and diving into other doctrines, this is why we can trust, know, and view Scripture as the source of knowledge about God and our identity as God's people. Thanks for listening to our second Doctrine episode. All quotes will be in the show notes below with citations for your reference and their credit. I'll have the link to my website to find the paper on senses of scripture there as well. Please follow us on Twitter at IdentityPod or follow me at Nathan Longfield. Please rate and review us on your preferred podcast platform. We'll be back soon for our second interview episode. Please join us then and feel free to reach out to me on Twitter or email me at identitypod at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. We'll be back soon. Grace and peace.